and welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast. I am your host, Emma Graney, and this is the Oil Be Back edition. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, With me today is Stuart Thompson, and it's his final Press Gallery podcast Mm -hmm. because Stuart is moving to Ottawa because Stuart's a jerk. He's moving to Stittsville. Let's just be really plain about this. Temporarily. That's like a holdover spot. But you will be, you will still be in the journal newsroom working for the National Post for a couple of yeah. weeks. Yeah, so if you're short of podcast guy, we might drag just give you me in. a call. <laughs> <laughs> Bola Simons. I'm here, and I'm here for the long haul. Hooray! <laughs> I, I'm your long haul gal. <laughs> <laughs> and Graham Thompson, also not going anywhere. Oh, the oil. Be oil be back. <laughs> uh, it's your accent. Uh, yeah, I know. It I makes actually, it even more punny, it's, it's, right? It's funnier. Yeah, I know. <laughs> wow. The wit. <laughs> Boy, we're off to a, a roaring start. I'm using my accent for good, not evil, Graham. So we're going we're gonna to talk about a few things to do with oil today, hence the hilarious title that Graham thinks is great. Uh, we'll start off with the Kinder Morgan pipeline, bit of a kerfuffle with BC, and of course the Premier again doubled down on that will be built uh, this week. We will also talk about an oil protest at the legislative building, oil workers. And they protested, and some of the political uh, fun that that came out of that. And then briefly, we will look at the child death review legislation, which was released this week. But let's first of all go to Kinder Morgan and pipelines and Premier Rachel Notley. It will be built. That pipeline will be built. Graham, what was it exactly she said? Mark my words. Mark my words. That pipeline will get built or will be built. And of course, this is a big issue for the, the government in Alberta because what's happened with this amazingly chaotic results of the BC election where you have a minority government. The Greens have 43. No, the, 41. Liberals have 43. You need 44 for majority. Liberals have 43. Not enough. The Greens have three and the NDP has 41. So 41 NDP and three Greens means 44. Good math. Just enough for a, a majority government. And they're going to join forces and uh, knock off the Liberals, and then they're going to do things including, they say, stopping the Kinder Morgan pipeline expansion, which is a big issue for the Alberta government. No and word so, on how. Sorry? No word on how. Well, that's just it. You know, they keep saying they get um, tools in the toolbox to stop it. Uh, we don't know what those toolboxes, uh, that toolbox actually has. The thing is, though, they can do things like tie up permitting, they could ask for another review of the environmental issues provincially. That won't stop it. It will delay it. And for Notley, a delay is as good as a denial because if there's no pipeline under construction in time for the next election, that she can tell Albertans, look, the climate leadership plans actually led to a new pipeline. She can use that as a, <clears throat> a way to, to uh, fend off the attack from the opposition by saying that the climate leadership plans actually working with us carbon tax we've got social license pipeline goes ahead if there's no pipeline going ahead for the next election that's a huge problem for notley which is why she is saying now it will get built Uh, there's two issues here one is political from bc they likely cannot stop this pipeline the other issue is the courts there is a, a, a review of this going ahead this fall that could be a problem but if that's if it sails through the the review then this thing will eventually get built. The question is, when will construction start? Will it start this year, next year, the year after? And it's a problem for Notley. If this gets delayed, it's a huge political problem. And we, of course, thought this was going to happen with a, when the outcome of the BC election was the shit show that it is. That's well, the technical term. Well, I mean, and really, because we're not 
I mean, the NDP and the Greens would have you believe that they just will automatically form government. That's not actually how the Westminster parliamentary system works. It may oh, be. You have little faith. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it is possible that because uh, the liberals did win more seats and because they are the incumbent government, the lieutenant governor of British Columbia may give Christy Clark's liberals the chance to see if well, they can. They likely will. And Clark has said, uh, Christy Clark has said, yes, they'll go ahead and actually call the session back. What's likely going to happen is they call them back. The liberals have a speaker. The speaker goes ahead. They have a speech from the throne. It gets defeated by the Greens and the liberals. Uh, sorry, the, the NDP. Then it collapses. <laughs> then you start over with the Greens yeah. and the NDP. Yeah. And the big question there is who becomes speaker? <laughs> well, because that's I'm sorry, you guys. It's just so. I know. We, we, love, we, we love this. I'm sorry, all you people out so there who do not care you. about the nerdity of the West Bar- Westminster parliamentary system. Oh, come on. Anyone I listening love, to this podcast definitely cares I, about I, the nerdery I, of the I, I love this stuff. And I love it that no matter. No matter how things fall out, whoever is on the losing side says, that's not fair. That's not democracy. <laughs> that's not how it's supposed to work. It is how it's supposed to work. I love the I love the loopiness of it. I love what we have inherited from Great Britain. <laughs> this, this complaint. I mean, you know, because this is the question of who who commands the government, who has confidence. So, you know, if the liberals can make some backroom deal and lure some people over in a giant game of Red Rover, uh-huh. then, you know, but, but as Graham correctly says or Emma correctly says, as somebody said, I mean, even if Clark is elected, even if Clark can somehow hold on to government, if she if she gets some floor crossers or something, um, that still doesn't give Rachel Notley a guarantee that a pipeline gets built because Clark was, you know, also throwing up some roadblocks to... Because to it be- to- well, because it became popular, right, in the yeah. narrative. Like, BC hates pipelines, therefore I hate pipelines too. <laughs> hey, guys, I don't yeah. want it either. Yeah, let's just stop we- it. We've been talking a lot about how this election has been a disaster for Rachel Notley, but I I can give you a scenario in which it is a very good situation for Rachel Notley with the Greens and the NDP in power. So, as Graham was saying, it's tough to see a path for this government to block this pipeline. And Rachel Notley right now is talking a lot of big talk. And yesterday I spoke to um, Environment Minister Shannon Phillips and... uh, CBC's Kim Dernasty said, what do you think of this uh, Andrew Weaver saying Rachel Notley's got to get with the program? And she just went <laughs> off for about two minutes about what a hypocrite Andrew Weaver is. And I wrote a story about it. It's online. Um, but the language was very strong. And Unlike Shannon Phillips, he <laughs> yeah, used strong language. I, and I will tell you, if you are a reporter, if anyone is listening to this and then gets my job in a couple of weeks, uh, <laughs> if you are moping around the legislature without a story, just go talk to Shannon Phillips. That's... <laughs> That's what happened to me yesterday. Um, so I wrote the story, and, and I was thinking about it, and I thought, this is pretty good for them, actually, because they are, you know, Notley gave a speech yesterday pleading for centrists to come to their party. They're looking at maybe more of a right-leaning opposition party than they've had before, like the, the this new party, maybe led by Jason Kenney, maybe led by Brian Jean. Um, so they're pushing into the middle, and maybe the best possible thing that can happen to them is they stand up, they shout at the Greens and the NDP across the border for a while, distinguish themselves from those kinds of NDPers and those kinds of environmentalists. And then if the pipeline goes ahead anyways, they get everything they wanted out of that. So even if it is a little delayed, which is possible, if the shovels are in the ground when the next election happens, if the economy is getting better, if we're getting that 
we had a, a report just last week about 3.3% GDP growth. That yeah. is a Al- big... Al- Alberta leading the country. That's a big improvement from even what they were saying a month ago. That was 2.7 was the loftiest expectations a month ago. And if this continues to improve, if employment tends to go with that, which it does, um, and the pipeline is built, and they've kind of made themselves look like the big centrist party who is telling the NDP across the border who's boss... That's a good situation to be in. So I wouldn't I wouldn't say that they're happy about all this. They're anxious for sure, but there is a scenario that's just as likely as any other that is very good for them. Another thing is though, if this government in BC does not last, and it likely will not last, there'll be another election before we have an election. Mm-hmm. It's two years till our next election and these things don't work for more than eighteen months, and that's with you know minority government not being propped up by three-member Green Party, which could actually just fall apart Well, because the NDPs and the the Greens came out of that election hating each other. I mean, the the NDP were furious with the Greens for, you know, eroding what they thought was their chance to form a majority government. Andrew Weaver and certain NDP candidates uh, had some very ugly confrontations during that campaign. So, you know, how long that coalition hangs together. Oh, British Columbia, thank you for thank you for making Alberta <laughs> politics look dull and ordinary. And the thing another thing about the practicalities, if you do have okay, you have forty four Green and NDPers and they pick one person to be the speaker. The speaker is really important. Then you have forty three opposition and forty three government. <laughs> And you have the speaker always having to break the tie, maybe the cast the tie vote. But so also, exciting. what happens if people get sick? You know, people cannot be allowed to leave the um, to leave Victoria. Basically, they must be chained to their desk almost literally. Yeah. Someone goes off for the weekend and can't get back for an important vote. Um, it's going to be a major major problem if anything goes wrong. Someone gets sick. Somebody, God forbid, gets killed in an accident. Um, but these things, as, as, a, as a razor's edge, and this cannot last. It won't last four years. It might not even last a few months after they actually get back this fall to a session. Yeah, there's also the question of, and I know you've been looking into this, Graham, about how does the speaker interpret his job in this situation? Yeah. Because there are, I mean, most people would say he has to maintain the status quo. That's right. Does that mean, though, that he will not let legislation pass because legislation that's new would be a deviation from the status quo? Or does the government decide what status quo? Does their bill mean that that's the status quo? Or, you know, is, it, is he just voting for budgets and saying, yeah, keep the government afloat? That's, I mean, that's sort of up to interpretation at this exactly. point. Exactly. So the, the laws, there's no real law. It's, there's protocols. You look at the actual, um, you read it online for the parliamentary guide in Ottawa, and you're right, <clears throat> Speaker, pardon me, must maintain a status quo. And what does that really mean? It's up for interpretation. Because the thing is, the Speaker then would not vote down the government, wouldn't kill a government, but would he actually pass a piece of legislation that changes the status quo? So it's really interesting that there's no law against it. But the thing is, even if a Speaker, NDP slash Green member, whatever, was then to vote all the time with the government to break a tie, that just then undermines the Speaker's credibility, Mm -hmm. who's supposed to be impartial and a referee. And we, we know they are members of a caucus, but... The fact that that speaker would be forced to vote with the government every single time would undermine the credibility of that chair. It's going to be fun to see how this reflects <laughs> upon Alberta's politics over well, the coming... Well, and it, 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 to pick up on Stuart's point, I mean, it may allow uh, Notley's government to get some traction, right? I mean, if British Columbia is mired in this kind of uh, civil, civil strife, as it were, uh, they're not going to be able to muster much of a you know, a foreign policy, if I can put it that way. All right. So, uh, you know, meanwhile, um, people here can truck along doing what they need to get done. Uh, I mean, no, no government in British Columbia, as, as Graham says, like for 18 months is going to have 
the traction or the credibility to move a, a policy agenda forward. Well, the pre- the Premier's conference is here in July. July. Yeah. So who's going to come? Christy cool. Clark? At this point, it's Christy Clark. I mean, well, she gets to decide when the legislature meets, who right? Who gets the yeah. trip to Edmonton? That's the big prize. Well, that's the big that, prize. Yeah. 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 Well, the thing is, if they call it back for June, we're thinking June. It can't wait too long. If it's June, then it f- fails, and they'll be Horgan will be the Premier. But it's interesting mentioning um, Notley. Uh, Paul, you mentioned this it was last week. If you just read the quotes from Notley, not knowing who actually said them, she sounds a lot like uh, Ralph Klein or anybody in the past from the PCs. Now, this pipeline will get built, mark my words. Mm. Yeah, you read those quotes and you're thinking that if you just put it face-to-face or side-by-side with somebody else like Klein in the past. You know, oh, I, I see a Graham Thompson column coming on. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's interesting, though, watching... <laughs> the, you're right, the maneuvering of... How, and that, going back to what Stuart's saying... It's interesting watching the language evolve over the last year or two from this government on this issue in particular. And I well, one thing it's also done is boxed in the opposition because there. So Brian Jean's initial response to this was that um, Sabora Berman needs to be off the oil sands advisory uh, board, and well, that's that, been a thing for a while. And I mean, yeah. th- is that really a response to this election in BC? Like that doesn't make any sense. And so I guess they were happy that this election had ended the way it did. I mean, this is an advisory board; it's not really relevant to what's going on. Uh, and then now their their whole line is um, this: this whole thing shows the NDP's social license has failed, and that is something else they've been going on for a while. But I. If I was in the opposition, strategically, I would be worried about that line of thinking because the pipeline, the odds are it's going to be built more than not. We could see protesters that could a lot of things could kibosh it. But if I were betting, I'd say it's probably going to at least start getting built. So at that point, what is your line? Does that mean social license has all of a sudden started working again? Like it doesn't really make a lot of sense. And I. I have noticed the opposition seems to be going on a day-by-day basis on this. They don't really seem to have any long-term strategy here. And I think maybe that's everyone is doing that because we don't know what's going to happen. But it has been deeply apparent the opposition doesn't have much place to maneuver with all this going on. This moves quite nicely on to our next topic, which is the protest that was at the legislative building this week. It was un- Tuesday. Yeah, it was unemployed oil workers. Uh Actually, Paula and I, we were up at the federal building um, as they were uh, giving us a technical briefing on the new child legislation, and we could hear the chanting. Mainly you could hear Brian Jean, actually. Yeah, he was um, loud. You couldn't hear Panda that well when he when he started, but Brian Jean, you could definitely hear him kind of echoing up through past the fountains, up into the little balcony by the federal building there. But you were actually at this protest, weren't yeah. you, Stuart? I think this is something that we wouldn't normally talk about. It was a pretty small rally. And it was, I would say 50, like there were a lot of staffers out there. (laughs) (laughs) And so I like, it was Gareth Hampshire from the CBC and I were trying to count and I was pointing out all the staffers to him to like knock off of his (laughs) crowd number. Um, And some of them were NDP. And that actually came up during the rally that, so there was a group of um, about 50 guys who were engineers and technical services. Most of them, I spoke to a lot of them, that most of them were for India or Indonesia or worked in Indonesia and they had immigrated and now they were saying, we came to this country, and now all the jobs are being sent out of this country. It seems kind of unfair. They were complaining about outsourcing. And 
one guy. Oh, the irony. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and one so guy. Are they, are they temporary foreign workers? No, or no, no, no. They're, they're immigrants. And actually, Fascinating. To, to their great credit, they knew a lot about what they were talking about. And it was a, I had some very nuanced conversations with these guys. And the government has moved to lock engineers out of the temporary foreign worker program. So that means those jobs can't be taken by TFWs. And the guy I was speaking to said, you know, that was a great move. This province, uh, the province made a great move there. We want them to champion our cause to the feds now because we're talking about outsourcing. And, you know, that's a federal issue. It's a hard thing to fight, but we want them to kind of wow. champion. What, what a thing about human psychology, right? I mean, I came here as an immigrant. Now I'm a Canadian. Now keep the other immigrants <laughs> yeah, out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I mean... I'm an immigrant too, and like I've hung ar- around a lot. Actually, of you're in a minority right yeah. now. <laughs> That's right. Three immigrants and one, <laughs> one not. Yeah, and it's a very interesting psychology because I've heard that amongst like my my family would hang out with all these Scottish immigrants, and there is a little bit of that anti-immigrant sentiment with immigrants sometimes, and uh, it's just kind of ironic. But they they were very interesting, and I thought they had a lot of good points. They had spoken to the Labor Department, Economic Development, Energy. They had spoken to everyone. Uh, the thing that was really striking to me about this, the reason I wanted to talk about it today, is that all of the politicians, Panda seems to, uh, Prasad Panda, the Wild Rose MLA, organized this and seemed to be very um, well up on what they were complaining about and seemed well informed. The rest of them were muscling their way in and didn't seem to have a clue what was going on. And so Rick McIver and got Jason up. Jason Kenney had put out a tweet about this. <laughs> yeah, he didn't show, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jason Kenney sent a tweet saying that it started the wrong time. Graham went looking for it with Gareth, and they couldn't find it, and then it happened at 1130. Um, McIver got up and talked about the carbon tax and was complaining about how the NDP didn't send a minister or anyone out there. And then at one point, he actually singled out an NDP staffer, uh, a young lady who was standing there and said, they've sent their media people, but they won't send a minister, and said, ma'am, I want you to tell your bosses that we're disappointed and not for not coming out to this. And it was one of those moments that it was the crowd turned on this young lady and people had cell phones and it was a very kind of hostile moment that it made me really uncomfortable because I was standing right there too. Um, and I, I, it bothered me. So at, at inns later that day, I asked McIver, like, do you think that was appropriate to be calling out staffers at a rally? Like you're a public figure and the ministers are public figures. So that's part of the game for you guys, but that's just a staffer doing their job. And he he said, well, you know, I was trying to make a point. And <laughs> like, I said, but you didn't need to do that to make the point that you could have just said the government isn't here. And he, and I said to him, the pre, his uh, press person was beside him. I said, you know, if, if Christine had been called out by a government minister, how would you react to that? And he said, well, you know, if, if I was a minister and somebody was calling me out and I had sent a press person, that would be they're entitled to do that. So it was an odd thing. It, I'm still not comfortable with it. I put it in my story because I thought people should know that it had happened. Uh, and, and then they moved down to the rally. Brian Jean got up and did a very loud speech. He's got a very loud voice, Brian Jean. And it actually was, you know, as far as delivery goes, Brian Jean isn't the best at this kind of thing. Um, but it was a fairly good speech. But it was all about the carbon tax. And tax the tax. I was talking to these guys and I said, what do you think about the carbon tax? And they said, well, it's not ideal, but it's not really what we're here for. Um, we're worried <laughs> about outsourcing. And it was which is one of those rallies where I thought, isn't this strange that this the people who are rallying, the people with the protest signs who are supposed to be the angry, incoherent ones, know everything. And the politicians don't know a damn thing <laughs> about what's going on here. And the one politician 
who I, I think would have brought maybe a different tone was Wayne Drysdale, who's a PCMLA for Grand Prairie. Who's so solid. He's yeah. a good guy. He was standing on the outskirts. Uh, I think he was eating a hot dog and just kind of like... <laughs> it was a very nice afternoon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was nice. He was eating something. I don't know if it was a hot dog. And he was chatting to all these guys. And then they, all the MLAs had kind of muscled into the CBC shot with the protest signs and kind of gotten in there. And they were kind of throwing elbows to get in. And the <laughs> press person for the PCs went oh Drysdale and grabbed him and said you got to get in here and he pushed him aside and went no I'm fine (laughs) it was one of those moments where I thought this is a politician turning down press and I think probably rightly so like Wayne Drysdale is awesome like in QP I I made this point yesterday you said this on Twitter just the other day yeah he is one of the very few MLAs who actually stands up and asks a question to get an answer. He doesn't mm-hmm. do it to throw political points at and things. And usually he it's of Adil Carly. Yeah, the, uh, Carly, he was asking. He did ask yesterday about um, Sarah Hoffman. He was wondering, you know, why is it that this this health thing in, in rural riding hasn't been built, in my rural riding hasn't been built, and yet the Edmonton Hospital, hey, what's up with that? Like, that's a totally reasonable question. And it wasn't cloaked in political rhetoric. He didn't just, you know, start yelling out, any catchphrases or anything at the NDP. He actually does politics to try and, I get the feeling, actually make things yeah. better for his he, constituents. Yesterday, actually. <laughs> what uh, a <laughs> I know. Yesterday was some old school parliamentary stuff, too, because he did what none of them do. And is, this is what the whole idea of being opposition is. You've got a question, you've got a first supplemental, you've got a second supplemental. And the very savvy opposition MPs or MLAs set the government up in their first two questions. Starkey does this too, Richard Starkey, who ran for leadership of the PCs. You set them up, you let them walk into the trap, and then you just hit them. Kabam! One time, Starkey did it so well, and then he mimed a home run swing afterwards. <laughs> I was like, that's great. Like, you, you got to do that. And yesterday it was about he lured Sarah Hoffman into, um, I, I think she was... W- really excited to give this response about how there was an Edmonton hospital being built and Drysdale had been part of the government that didn't do that. And then he kind of used that against her, that that partisan response. And, you know, it's not hard to do because, you know, there, there's talking points that you as an opposition member should know. There are times when um, Hoffman will be doing a response and the opposition will say it along with her and because they know it so well. So as an opposition writer or an opposition MLA, it's easy. You should be doing more of this stuff. Yeah. Wayne Drysdale. Uh, yes, say with Wayne Drysdale, a shout out to Wayne here. Um, <laughs> I should he, just call this the We Heart Wayne podcast. Well, <laughs> he does ask questions of the government. You're right. And the point where he would ask a question of Anil Carlier, the ag minister uh, on farm issues, and he got a response, a proper answer. Yeah. Another question. So I have, went up to uh, uh, Carlier, the minister, and said to him, do you get these questions in advance? Is this something where you actually are, are talking to Wayne yeah. beforehand because it's a very civilized exchange? He goes, no, no, you know, these are real questions. I'm getting real answers. And so Drysdale is actually asking these questions. Uh, and it's not like sometimes the opposition will let a minister know beforehand on topics that they really want an answer from. So they'll yeah. give them a heads up. I'm going to ask you about something to do with my, my writing. And they actually then will, in a sense, coordinate the um, the question and answer from the opposition and the government. So I thought that that's actually happening here. It does happen, but no, this is actually Wayne just asking questions, getting an answer. Well, and it so, you know, all so, the time. so credit to the credit to the agriculture minister too. Absolutely. I mean, who, who you know, I mean, the, the the two of them can actually have civil discourse about a matter of public policy it's that so matters weird. to a great many of El, you know, <laughs> when you, so many lovely. ordinary Albertans. It's fifty minutes of QP. 
And that one exchange is so different from everything else yeah, that happens. It really in stands it's out. So weird. And I just uh, one of the MLAs who doesn't do that is Derek Fildebrand. Um, <laughs> there's a segue. Now here's my segue. He said yesterday he's still not sure if he's running for uh, leader of the United Conservative Party. He's got a lot of factors to weigh up, including his family commitments. Philip Red's got a new baby, and yes, that's a big concern. So he sees P in a very different way. <laughs> <laughs> but you know who is uh-huh. running? Ah, huh? segue, Graham. Who's running? Doug Schweitzer. There we go. A lawyer from Calgary. So far, the only declared real candidate. Yeah, that's because right. Because there is, there's no race yet. Because there's no party. There's no UCP. <laughs> I love the fact party. he's running for a party that doesn't exist. It's awesome. So he's doing right now. He's actually, <laughs> he's actually getting members to. He said, join, I guess, either party, and vote <laughs> twice for the unification. Um, Schweitzer made a bit of a. A splash last year. Uh, he was supposed to run for the PC leadership. He was the person, he was the red Tory, the progressive Tory, the social moderate, fiscal conservative, who was going to take on Kenny and save the PC party. And he was going to run. He was, um, he was made a quiet tour of the province. He began, he's having a news conference on the Wednesday, I think it was August or September now, by memory, September. He's going to have a news conference to announce he was running. The previous Friday, I was told he was going to start hiring people for his campaign, and we thought, this is real. This is going to go ahead. On the Monday, though, he announced he wasn't running, and he actually supported Kenny's Unite the Right. And that was a huge disappointment to a lot of the progressive conservatives who wanted him to run. Yeah, well, that, Actually, that on the Friday, he hired a press secretary? Well, I was saying, uh, yeah, yeah, he was actually hiring people and on the Friday. on Monday, he was gone. It's almost like I just said that. <laughs> Sorry. I have, I, have, I, have, I have Thompson's stereo. <laughs> Thompson's on either side yeah. of me. He was hiring on Friday. Monday, two days before he's supposed to announce he's running, he says, I'm not running. And so I tried getting a hold of him like for days, weeks to find out. We had, I wrote a bit about it in a column as to maybe some of the pressure put on him not to take on Kenny. Well, lo and behold, he is now out and he's running. And his Facebook Today. post. Yes, he's out <laughs> running now. Um, he made some snarky comments about you know career politicians and we don't want an Ottawa-centric uh, uh, politics in Alberta. It was very much an attack, at least on Kenny, I could see it. And, and maybe on Gene as, as well. As well, because they're both from federal politics. So he's actually then saying, I also he said the hyper-partisan politics and politicians, there's no, there's no place for that in Alberta. So he really was taking issue, I think, with Kenny and perhaps even with Brian Jean. So he's in the race to try and, I think, steer this into more moderate ground for this new party. The thing is, though, he's talking about issuing policy and things like that. The problem is we don't know what the party stands for. <laughs> the party, if it actually works out, they're going to have a ratification vote July 22nd. The next day, officially, the leadership race starts. There'll be a vote in October for a new leader, and then a founding convention to actually plan their policy after that. So a leader comes out right now and starts saying, here's my policy for this new party. It doesn't it may change, really, though. <laughs> it, it may change, yes. And now, just briefly, um, I did want to talk about the child welfare legislation that came out this week. Um, as referenced earlier, Paula and I were just out of the technical briefing about to go into the news conference when we heard the oil protest yeah. down there. But Paula, you were... You can hardly hear it over the sound of my shrieking. <laughs> yes, over the sound of your boiling anger. It was difficult to hear. This is legislation that will change the child death review process. It was the first phase of work uh, that was... Re- the recommendations were written by the Child Intervention Panel. 
it did come by pretty quickly. Those recommendations yeah. went to government in what April, and yeah, uh, they just introduced the legislation yeah, six this weeks. Week. Six weeks after they got the uh, the draft recommendations. So points for speed, uh, points for untangling in some ways the incredibly Byzantine dysfunctional child death review system in which there were so many people doing reviews or not doing reviews that nobody was following up. So the idea here is to concentrate power in the office of the child and youth advocate who currently does very few reviews relatively speaking. He sort of picks the ones where he sees systemic, you know, that they are microcosms of systemic issues and then he does a very high level review and says, see, here are the systemic issues. They're the same systemic issues I told you about in my last seven reports, and maybe you should do something about them. So this would give the Office of the Child and Youth Advocate far more power, make it mandatory that the Child Advocate's Office review every single death of a child in care or the death of any child uh, 20 or under who had received protective services within two years of their death. Um, Here are my two main problems with what ostensibly looks like a good plan. One, um, Del Graff's office is perennially understaffed and underfunded. He has precisely seven investigators on staff. Uh, if he's being mandated to review every single death, including the you know the deaths from natural unpreventable causes, childhood leukemia, um, genetic uh, abnormalities, uh, being hit by a car, being, which yeah, is, yeah, he will which, which, yeah, I mean, every single death. Um, and the government can't say uh, how much more funding. The government says, well, that's up to the office, the, you know, the Committee of Legislative Offices, which is technically correct. But, you know, I said to the government, you must have some sense of how big a budget Graf's office will need if you're quadrupling their workload. And they're like, oh, well, no, we really can't say. It would be wrong for us to comment. And then when I said in the paper that they wouldn't say, they were like, no, no, we didn't say we wouldn't say. We said we couldn't say. So, yes. So we don't know what kind of budget parameters uh, the Child and Youth Advocate will be given to do far more work. The other issue is Sutler, but for me, far more problematic. Uh, Under the Child Advocate's law, he has extraordinary uh, draconian privacy built into his legislation. I can now tell you Serenity's name. I can show you her photograph. I can tell you what part of the province she lived and died in. I can tell you when. Uh, Graf can't do any of those things. So his reports will all be secret. I mean, they'll be public, but the information about who died, when they died, where they died will be secret. And since they are hoping that this will reduce the number of public fatality inquiries because it will streamline things, they won't need as many public fatality inquiries, I put it to them that this means that there will in fact be fewer public investigations of the deaths of children in care and that I was very sad and I think I really upset them because in my column I said it was a betrayal of the public trust and made a mockery of the whole child death review process. They were super sad. They were super sad that I wrote those things. They were very, very sad. Yes, they were so very sad. sad. I heard I heard from many sad people. Well, they wanted um, all this. this. Their plan was all this would go away this week, yeah. and they would never have to think about it again. And this, this just, well, yeah. this, this, this they are just working on a whole separate set of recommendations, and they are still reviewing how are, the entire uh, intervention system and works. They, and they are also in the middle of a giant review of the Child Advocates legislation yeah. and mandate. Yeah, which is so, due, June 22nd. So the problem is there are so many balls in the air on this. It would seem as though it would be a good idea if everyone did their reviews, had an actual deadline and came back with some concrete ideas and then here we go, oh look we'll make all these changes at the same time so that it all comes together and works. 
you know, like a plan. But um, I guess at least something's happening. Yes, and there is, I mean, part of this is that there was the most intense political pressure this government's ever experienced. Maybe maybe Bill Six, but I don't think it's I don't think Bill Six was as bad as this, um, partially because this is something that hits them right where they live. Um, but they've never had anything like this, and they wanted so badly to move quickly on this, and I think that they did. And I think what we got out of it was more than we would have gotten otherwise, of course. Um, so hopefully this is first steps. Um, one thing, Paul, I wanted to ask you, uh, you said in your column, the recommendations aren't binding to the government. No, and and, and, I, I just and, had a question about that. Has that does that happen anywhere else? No, I mean, they, and they can't be binding. I think Del Graf's point was not so much that they should be binding, but that there's no mechanism. What the legislation says is that the government has 75 days to respond to his recommendations. And he said, well, that's nice. They have 75 days to say, thank you. We've received your recommendations for consideration. But where's the mechanism for him to follow up? And yeah. his concern was that the legislation puts all kinds of restrictions on him. You must do this. You must do that. You must do the other thing. But he said, you know, if I were the auditor general, I would be able to come back to yeah. a, a public a committee. A, a committee and say, hey, I made these recommendations and you didn't do anything with yeah. them. And there might still be something like that set up. I mean, that would make perfect sense if they would have said something like that up, would, would it not? I actually asked Notley about this at a presser. I said, shouldn't these go back to a committee at some point? And she said she didn't think that was the way it should be done. You know, I mean, the, the problem is, I guess, they're so consumed with their own sense of self-righteousness. I mean, because it was when I, when I was speaking with, uh, with the press staff for the ministry, and I said, well, you know, you couldn't give me any sense, even like the vaguest ballpark sense of what the budget would be. And the staffer said to me, well, did you honestly think that we would announce a thing and then not fund it? And I said, yeah, forgive me. But after, you know, after <laughs> not 20, like that's never happened. After 25 years of covering politics in this province, yeah, the idea that a government might announce an initiative and then not fund it properly. Am I insane for thinking <laughs> that that's I mean, I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, just because you're New Democrats, I can't assume that you are on the side of the angels and I can just take it with a nudge and a wink that you're going to make it fine because you are New Democrats. Yeah. That, that, is not, that is not my job. This, the cynic in me, too, write about this stuff and said, well, you, if you were trying cynically to make these things not as politically uh, explosive as they are, you would give a crap load of work to the child advocate and yep. not staff him and then yep. say, well, you got 26 reports to do this year, buddy. Good luck with that. And then they can only do surface-level reports. And... That I don't think that's absurd to think that that's the plan, and they need to prove to us that it's not, and yeah. they can't just have us assuming that everything will be fine. Yep. Now we are going to move on to our regular segment, good stuff from the gallery. Stuart, what do you have for us, mate? Uh, this week, I would like you to read the New York Times obituary for uh, Dennis Johnson, a uh, fiction writer who died last week. Um, he uh, He's one of those writers that's just so good, but so under the radar. Um so if you read that and you think this guy sounds like someone that I would want to read, he's a very interesting character. He was um, addicted to a lot of things in the 80s and then... Who wasn't yeah, in the 80s? Thought that made him a better writer and realized he hadn't written anything and then kicked <laughs> those addictions and started writing for real. Um, so after that, he wrote a book called Jesus' Son, which is a collection of short stories. And um, I would... Um, read the first story it's about a hitchhiker who gets in a car crash it's very short i don't i don't think it's more than 2000 words um but it is one of the most excellent just uh most searing short stories i've ever read uh read that and if you like it keep going uh the rest of the book is great and there's another book called train dreams which is 
just um, a triumph of the, just the, the voice he uses in that story. It's something that as a writer, you read that and you think, I, I don't have a clue how he did this. It's it's a wonderful read. Paula? Uh, I am removing my Trump Trump-related articles moratorium to recommend <laughs> a, a really remarkable piece in Time magazine this week about Jared Kushner, explaining Jared Kushner's family history and his psychology, and it's a really, really interesting profile of Kushner at a time when he's uh, in the crosshairs of a lot of media attention. And I just thought it was a really well-written piece that gave me a lot more insight into Donald Trump's son-in-law and the levers of power that he controls in Washington. Hooray. I am going to reflect back on something we spoke about today. It is Tristan Hopper's article in the National Post called An MLA with Diarrhea Could Topple the Government. A playlist <laughs> of just how crazy things could get in BC. If you read me that headline, I would tell you 100% of the time it was a Tristan Hopper story. Yeah, I didn't even have to look at who wrote that just to know that Tristan Hopper wrote that Uh it is. It outlines all of the wackiness that uh, is 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 possible on the West Coast right now. I'm not going to spoil it, but um, spoiler: diarrhea is one of them. <laughs> Graham, <What's that? laughs> I hope that wasn't a segue uh, to well, you. Speaking of diarrhea, mine's about Trump. <laughs> uh, it's from the Economist, and it's just overnight. It was the headline is "The Flaws in Donald Trump's Decision to Pull Out of the Paris Accord." Economist is a wonderful magazine. Uh, they call themselves a newspaper, but they're a wonderful publication. And uh, once again, they're explaining, you know, climate change is real and how they should actually deal with it at the business level and economically and how Trump is once again completely missing the point. Oh, Trump, what will you do next? No one actually ever knows. Thank you guys for joining us. Uh, Stuart, Paula, Graham, and Sean Butts, who is here to film some of this and put it online at edmontonjournal.com, where you can find all of the Press Gallery podcast episodes. You can also subscribe to our SoundCloud channel, iTunes, and TuneIn Radio. Stuart, I hope you do come back and visit us in the next couple of weeks. Yes, yeah, I'll bang on the window yeah. if I don't. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah, for, for all of half an hour. Yeah. <laughs> just like do blowfish on the window yeah. with your cheeks. And oh, stuff. it's just like that scene in The Graduate. <laughs> Emma! Emma! <laughs> but I hope the rest of you do come back next week and join us on the Press Gallery.